Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. I'm your host, Michael Lilienthal, and Ethan, you're my guest. Am I? Yep, okay. you're my guest. Well, I don't, I don't feel, this... I don't feel like you're. But okay, if that's if you say so. I say so. You are my guest at this soiree oh boy. Uh, of a podcast. Have um, I mentioned that I hate parties? Uh, do you pop out at parties? Uh, no, but I am <laughs> unpopular. <laughs> yes, we knew this. <laughs> uh, we are uh, in episode two of four of our uh, Mongo book for 2023, uh, and we are continuing to drink the Krieg Isle Single Malt Scotch Whiskey aged 12 years. Um, so it's aged 12 years in American oak. Um, and not that that necessarily means anything. I don't know. I mean, it does. does. Mean anything to you, Ethan? It 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 does. It but... means something. I don't know if it means anything to me. Okay. Much as well, we've been doing this podcast for like six years now, and it probably should, but that probably should. <laughs> beside the point. Yes, little little off to the side of of where the point is, and the point is get your wife in here to read the rules. Hey, wife. Rule one, once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two, no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three, Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four, Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five, if anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six, the wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven, if four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. Thanks, wife. Prost. Slancha. Okay, now, Ethan... We are continuing to talk about this book, War and Peace, by Leo Tolstoy. Now, Michael, um, do you feel like in this yeah. episode, will we maybe get farther than, like, the first page? <laughs> you know, I when, when I was thinking about this book and, and discussing this book, I realized there are four parts to this book. So it could very easily be divided in such way, and then we, you know, and then we went ahead bits of the epilogue, sort of like just discuss the first page. 
less. Right. So we're not allowed to talk with any more from volume one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's fair. If you want to go straight to book two, um, I'm down. I mean, we could. But uh, I'm okay letting it be a little free. Um but we should get a little farther. But I do want to talk a little more about some background. I want to talk about Leo himself. Um, and I, I meant to, to compliment you last time when you were going off on uh, Napoleon and all of that, how you were very Tolstoyan about it um, in going back further and further and further sure, yes. in order to give us more and more context. That's fair. Um, That's like my which, usual thing, like, but I'll take it as like a as like a Tolstoyan compliment. Yes. Yes. Good. Uh, so like this, this book was um, uh, released um, serially uh, and when it was originally published, it started off being published as uh, under the title of 1805, um, which is the first year that it begins, but it, it goes much farther than that. But uh, when Tolstoy himself talked about this book, he wanted to uh, write about Napoleon's invasion of Russia, but then he realized he needed to go back farther to give it more context. And he could have gone back ad nauseum, which some might argue that he did, um, but he decided to stop at 1805 uh, and start there uh, and give this this context. So this touches on some of his philosophy uh, about history in general. He doesn't have a lot of nice things to say about historians <laughs> in the uh, epilogue and appendix um, to the book. Um, but... Uh, it, it, I mean, it's it's an interesting setup that he he gives here, talking about. I mean, there are some philosophical uh, ideas behind what he he t- discusses here that that come out that come out in the book too, um, where those who think they're important and think they're the heroes and everything are really more buffoonish than the average soldier, so to speak, or the average um, homemaker. You know, um, he he lionizes them more here. Uh, he allows the, the more ordinary types. We can still discuss some of the class differences perchance, but um, the, the people who are not the heroes of history uh, are heroes to Tolstoy. Yeah, um, um, I would like to mention and again, like this seems like as good a place as any um i don't know if there maybe could have been a better one but i did during this read of war and peace just start sort of a a draft of a of a document um that i called things tolstoy thinks are impossible to know yes and this has to do Uh. with some of his remarks about historians, sort of as, as you've mentioned in sort of the later chapters, including in the epilogue, but I think it's a theme that recurs in sort of different um, iterations, variations, permutations throughout the book. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll just quickly run through it because it's not very long, but um, this is things Tolstoy thinks are impossible to know. Why a given battle or war is won or lost yes why anything happens in history yes why you're sick and how to get better (laughs) 
Yes. How to manage people effectively. And the last one I have on here that I don't like, all the others I remember at least vaguely where I got this in the text. The last one I have on here under things Tolstoy thinks are impossible to know is why you lost it, Chess. <laughs> I, I, I think there's something, something about that. I yes. think there is, but like, I've been obsessed with Chess the last year and a half or two, and I don't know if I put that in there because it's in the text or because like, it just based on all the arguments he was making for the other things, it was like, well, it's in that case also impossible <clears throat> to know why you lost a chess. Um, I could sort of see it either way. I, I believe you when you say that you think there's something in there, though. Um, yeah. And I think that, like, there's, like, a common theme running throughout this book that, like, ties into all of that. That it's essentially impossible to know the cause of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess the, the argument that I'm personally least comfortable with on that list is the idea of like it being impossible to know why you got sick or how you got better. Um, sure. Partly because it ties in with modern, like what I would call willful ignorance uh, from <laughs> certain groups of people who like, for whatever reason, whether cultural, political, or aesthetic, like, refuse to understand scientifically why certain cures or preventatives work or how they work and sort of spread a certain willful ignorance that damages others but, like, promotes their brand or something. Like, it just tied in a lot with that in my mind, but I don't know that (laughs) that's, like fair to read back from 2023 onto Tolstoy in the mid 1860s um or onto what he's doing yeah with that argument but i will you know i just want to acknowledge that it did trigger that for me um sure but i think the more overall idea that he's going for maybe as simple as like correlation not equaling causation that like Yes. Historians, doctors, uh, chess connoisseurs, um, Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, sort of others who fall into this list. Um, At least Tolstoy's accusation is essentially that they have cataloged a lot of things that happen... um, in correlation with each other but like that you know even again even management um but but like that they haven't proven any kind of causation or any causation they have proven Mm. isn't particularly uh compelling Mm -hmm. yes yes uh so i i'm i'm <clears throat> your your list there is is sparking uh, a, a thought to me that I'd be interested to know Tolstoy's reading of this, but it it, it inspired in me a recollection of. Um, I'm just going to read a passage from Proverbs. Sure, <laughs> that's all right. Yeah, um, Proverbs. This is Proverbs thirty eighteen and nineteen, um, and and this falls under the the chapter that's uh, the words of Agur, the son of Jacke his utterance. Anyway, 
Uh, so Augur says, there are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yes, four, which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a virgin. Uh, um, <laughs> okay. Which is just like, it, it's a fun little funny part of, uh, of Proverbs. Um, I mean, certainly with, uh, with a great deal of wisdom there too. But, uh, so it, it, it's, I, I'm wondering what, um, Tolstoy's reading of that would be. Um, in his understanding, he might just come out and say, yeah, yep, I don't understand. So neither should you assume to either. So, um, uh, which, which I think is, is maybe the greatest gripe he has is people assuming they know things that they don't. Um, and when you read, so this is something that my wife was making fun of me for as I was reading it this time, uh, that I would just start laughing i would start giggling to myself while i was reading this book and she would she's got a video of her asking me what's so funny michael and i'd say war and peace (laughs) (laughs) um and because it's it is a very funny book in like not throughout not every page but they're like there's there's a, a from 15 years ago i do not remember it being so funny uh as as it is this time and a lot of it is i think a satirical sort of funny that Tolstoy is um, like turning Napoleon into a sort of buffoon mm. character, um, uh, or um, what, what's the um, Kurt Kurtzov, um, the other the the Russian general. Um, yeah. What ah, shoot? What's his name? Um, Kurtzov. Th- this right. is. I'm not a historian. Yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> um. But yeah. So like. Uh. I, I mean, you've got this guy falling asleep in the middle of war rooms and stuff and like right. snoring and and it's just very funny um and then like there there are accounts of battles and so you've got these epic battles which tolstoy's we can talk about his his narrative style and his prose too but like he he gives a very deep and intense description of these battles that are occurring and so you can visualize them you can see what's going on but in the midst of all of this you've got these people these messengers who are coming from the battlefront to talk to napoleon or kurtzov uh and say what should we do and they're like do this and then tolstoy inserts this little thing where it's like by the time they got there like that maneuver would not be possible anymore (laughs) um so like nope they just did whatever they wanted uh so again to your point like we have no idea why they won because you know the generals had their their points and like what they were telling them to do and everything but they might not have followed that they might not have been able to follow that that order might have been nonsense by the time it reached them um it's really interesting to me that you read that as comedic i think it's valid and and i'm frankly kind of disappointed in myself that i missed it like reading it that way um because i was you know more reading it just like yeah this is how battlefields in the early 1800s would have been this is sure. before radios this is before any kind of mm-hmm. uh i mean radar or anything like that much less computer readouts any you know anything sort of instantaneous and electronic um right you maybe had telegraphs developing at this time but they certainly weren't equipped for use on battlefields right um in this period um but yeah i mean it's absolutely comedic and and frankly funny the the um the way that battles kind of are portrayed in this book that i think is probably pretty historically accurate but again it's also it is also yeah 
funny and and comedic and that's that's an interesting reading of it yeah no i think and i think a lot of it is intentional too because you've got uh, well, I mean, there there are certainly parts that are definitely, inarguably comedic. There's the this couple that hosts a party, and I, I forget what their names are. They're really minor characters, but they're total buffoons. Mm-hmm. Um, they have no idea how to host a party, <laughs> and um, it's really funny. Anyway, um, and, and I did a really bad job of of describing it and explaining it. Um, <clears throat> but uh, in, in the midst of that, then like you've got this this intense deep um experience of of death and and war that these characters are going through but right in the middle of that tolstoy injects this bit of uh, it's a dark humor mm. like it, it is certainly humorous in the sense that you've got this miscommunication this comedy of errors so to speak that's going on but it, the the effects of it are really tragic in a way so it's it is it's kind of a tragic comedy um that that goes on yeah. through all of I this think... which i think ties in with with tolstoy's whole theme of of calling this war and peace like why is it called war and peace um and you know adding to your list of what tolstoy thinks we can't know is really the dividing line between war and peace mm. um i i don't think he thinks we know what the division is there um I want I want to connect a little bit to his personal life. Uh, it was after he wrote this book, but um, Tolstoy founded his own church. Did you realize that? I didn't know that. No, I knew he had like, I knew there were some like pretty extreme religious swings, uh-huh. uh, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. that he took late in his life. I don't I don't think I yes. knew that he founded his own church. I I don't remember hearing anything about him being like excommunicated or declared a heretic by the Orthodox Church or anything like that. But um, he definitely um, set himself up as a preacher uh, and started, uh, he called himself a Christian anarchist. Yes, I did know that. Um, Yes. Um, And like that was tied in with all these views that he had. And as someone who like, probably not in the same way, but has often been <laughs> tempted to call himself a christian anarchist myself like i identify with that if not with like the specific views that he uh uh propounded um sure i'm just like th- there's a very brief biography of tolstoy in like the mm. one of the front pages of my copy um and I'll just quote the, like, parts that might be relevant to this discussion. In 1879, so War and Peace was finished in 1869, so ten years later. 1879, after undergoing a severe spiritual crisis, Tolstoy wrote the autobiographical A Confession, and from then on he renounced his earlier literary work seeking to propagate his views on religion, morality, nonviolence, and renunciation of the flesh. Um, Yes. Uh, skipping down a decent amount. As a result of his new beliefs and the intrusion of his disciples into his family's sphere, which accompanied his growing international fame as pacifist and sage, relations with his wife became strained and family life became increasingly difficult. At last, in 1910, at the age 1910, at the age of 82, 
He fled his home only to collapse and die of pneumonia at a local railway station. So that's as much as, mm-hmm. like, I, like I knew about his, sort of his later life and right. status as preacher or sage or whatever sort of uh, term right. is most accurate to use. I, I, I don't know the legacy that he created. I don't know how much of like his church in heavy quotes uh stuck around after his death um and i don't think it matters but um yeah so like that that the his pacifism and um anarchism was was all tied in there and i i, I don't know if i i read anywhere whether he renounced war and peace i know he renounced some of his earlier works specifically but war and peace i don't know for sure mm. if that was if that was part of it um but like I think there there are elements of that yet, even though that spiritual crisis hadn't happened yet when he wrote War and Peace. This is a younger Tolstoy um, writing War and Peace. But some of those views are certainly here in that idea of anarchy in the strict sense being that, like, the rulers and such, what effects do they actually have? What, What power do they actually have? And Tolstoy doesn't think they actually have any power. Um they're they're figureheads and people die in their name but they're not actually um accomplishing anything in Tolstoy's view um there so like there there's there's a bit that's um it, it's a it's a religious experience that one of the characters has in the novel Rostov um that uh when he encounters the emperor the russian emperor um 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 what's his name Al- Al- alexei no, sounds right. That's a different character. Anyway, um, when he when he encounters the Russian sovereign, um, it's a religious experience that he has, and he's just like taken over by this fervor. And uh, that's another bit that I read as a little bit humorous. I mm. think I think Tolstoy is mocking Rostov um, a little bit there, and anyone who would have such a religious view of any political leader. Um, I, I I don't think it's necessarily as fully formed as it was later after he had that uh, crisis of faith or or um, what have you, but it's it's there that like that that view that generals, kings, emperors, rulers don't have the power and authority that people think they do. Yeah, I I think that um, I don't know that you're wrong about the idea that he's mocking Rostov, I think that, um, War and Peace for me embodies Milan Kundera's later sort of formulation mm. that the novel is a, um, uh, the existence of the novel is as an embodiment of ambiguity and that, mm. um, Tolstoy uses ambiguity very consciously and very intentionally in this novel. So it's not even mm-hmm. to necessarily ridicule a character's belief that Tolstoy oh, doesn't no. agree with. It's so much as it's um to embody like to embody a belief that Car- Tolstoy doesn't agree with specifically in order to uh counterpose a different or a later idea um that Tolstoy does agree with and that in the in the instance of Rostov specifically I think that 
Um, the counterpoint to it has to do with him falling in love with Natasha and their whole relationship. Mm. Um, and the idea that uh, I think that Rostov achieves multiple spiritual apotheoses um, with regard to Maria in or to uh, Maria, not um, to Natasha, rather in counterpoint to um, a lot of his unless I'm no, sorry. I'm Isn't that Pierre Rostov and uh, Balkonsky, I think. Oh, Balkonsky. Yes. yes. Um, yeah, they're they're mm hmm. Um, yes, but yeah, there's, I, yeah. Okay. So I did, I did that wrong, but, uh, I, I still think yeah. there's, there's Cause, a, cause Natasha is a raw stuff. Right. <laughs> That's a sister. Right. <laughs> so I, I guess to, um, yeah, to reformulate it slightly, uh, sure. you know, Nikolai, well, I mean, they have, they both have like religious overtones in their, their experiences. So like. Uh, Tolstoy is playing with the, with religious experience yeah. in all of this. Yeah, but I think among that, the different characters, I think that um, Natasha ultimately has what is meant to be a fuller religious experience, both with her her relationship with um, uh, Prince Andre, and also with her relationship with Pierre. Um, that is mm-hmm. a well-rounded sort of life-producing uh, religious experience as opposed to uh, Nikolai's just more, like, <clears throat> sort of... I'm trying to find a different word than masturbatory. Because um, <laughs> this is a family show. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but it's like... I don't know. Natasha's experience tends to point outward where, where, uh, Nikolai's experience tends to point more to the sort of nationalist idea that in some of Mm. the other ambiguities, I think embodied in this novel, including what we talked about last episode with Pierre and, um, Mm uh, uh, you know, his problematizing of some of these older, uh ideas of of uh godly uh rulership and godly rulers like mm-hmm. that that's problematizing so like yeah i don't know i feel like i had a conclusion that i've lost but um that's okay i i guess the other thing i wanted to say about uh you know foreshadowing of told like i agree with you completely that every time i've read this novel what little I know about Tolstoy's later religious, like, renunciations of his earlier works and beliefs and so forth, like, does seem like it's foreshadowed. The other foreshadowing that seems very obvious to me is Princess Maria. Um, and sort of the, uh, um, it, again, the embodied ambiguity of her relationship with her father. Um, her father oh my gosh very atheistic in his tendencies though maybe not entirely and mm-hmm. her being very religious and sort of the uh um religious people and ideas that she 
embodies in their estate of bald hills and by officially her father's estate of bald hills but functionally also her estate that she embodies right. in it sometimes with or very often in fact without her father's knowledge um right that like yeah i i i don't know i don't know how comfortable i am reading the tea leaves of tolstoy you know both yeah, sure. back through time and translation like maybe if it was just mm-hmm. one or the other I'd certainly be more muddied comfortable. but yeah. um but that said like a lot of the sympathy shown by her for these religious folk and by the text for her does certainly seem like a it seems very telling um without yeah. trying to prognosticate about what it's telling about is i guess what i'd say right right i so i'm i'm interested to know what part you cried at in in this reading for me like anything to do with princess maria it like oh my gosh she was I, I i don't remember her 15 years ago striking me so hard i remember a little bit of her like um welcoming in the pilgrims and um all of that but ah, man like yeah her relationship with her father and everything was just so rough this time and like i had such sympathy for her this time around um yeah which the text offers and and gives man like any any chapter that had to do with her i was like all right here we go (laughs) right um no i agree um i think that uh i think that specifically okay so i'm gonna just like i foreshadowed this a little bit last episode but i'm gonna just come out and explicitly say that to me um a little bit my first reading and much more so the second reading the subtitle of war and peace is uh Hmm. Natasha, Pierre, and a bunch of distracting side plots. Um, <laughs> yes. Because I'm like in love, literally in love with Natasha, and I identify a lot with Pierre, and like I literally don't care about any of the rest of this book. That is not actually true, <laughs> but like that's that's sort of what I'd say if I was like being. Only slightly and not very much facetious. Um, no, that's fair. Yeah. Um, so uh, th- this this any time you talk with anybody who knows anything about Tolstoy, they'll they'll say that no two characters in Tolstoy are the same because he's created a whole world and every individual character is a full person. And in fact, no two horses are the same right. in Tolstoy. Um, <laughs> like that's, that's the line you always hear. Um, and I, I, I think it goes even beyond that because, you know, so you identified so, so strongly with Pierre and I can see myself doing that. This reading, I was a lot more connected with Rostov. Mm. Um then like I, I but I can see myself being more connected with Pierre I, and it, it's 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 a variety and I think that's something that's that that really connects with the richness of this that Tolstoy in his view whether pre or post spiritual crisis <laughs> doesn't matter I think he is so in tune with what makes people different, what, what makes individuals, 
what what makes um uh, a, a particular person unique mm-hmm. um th- that he understands that and he sees how that plays a part in history but is not willing to and because of that i think is not willing to brush individuals under the rug of history mm-hmm. um if they happen to not be emperors right <laughs> um or especially um, if they happen to not be emperors maybe yes yes again going um, very much so back I, to you know anarchism even right right but i think at this point Right. I, I think his views on on history and war and, and such really are connected to his writing style. Mm-hmm. I, I think they're they're tied together. Um, this, so we talked last time about the translations, too. And, you know, I don't know Russian, so I'm not going to be an authority on this. But um, what uh, uh, Richard Pevere talks about in terms of Tolstoy's repetitiveness. And, like, I didn't note every time I noticed his repetitions and things. But it it, it came out in, in the translation how often he would be repetitive. And I think the effect... Uh, of the repetitiveness was really to infuse a sense of the mundane mm. um in in the lives of the characters um the the one phrase that stands out is there there's a uh, a portion in a later chapter much much later that um comes about when um Volkonsky is dying um that uh it says drops dripped is like the literal translation of the Russian, um, where others, uh, have, have translated it in, um, the branches dripped, the trees were dripping, raindrops dripped instead of the idea of this sound as, uh, um, Pavir says of drops dripped. And so like he highlights that particular passage, uh, in his introduction, um, but it, it's it's throughout. Um, again, I don't know the Russian. I don't. I haven't compared to other translations. But the idea of these mundane sounds that are filling the average character's life. Um, but again, having different voices to the different characters too. Um, so he's very interested, and I'm very interested in what he does here with the individual characters and how they have their own lives that are affected by war and peace, whatever those mean, mm. um, and vacillate and change. And so, you know, you, you, uh, talked about this when we were discussing, um, Jude, the obscure, how, um, Thomas Hardy doesn't believe in, uh, a, a like, a basically a character arc. <laughs> right. Um, he, character he doesn't believe that characters can change. Yes, exactly. Um, Tolstoy, I think is the polar opposite um, mm-hmm. of that. I, I think he sees characters as exploring and changing and developing throughout life with um, ca- uh, an infinite number of causes that can't be understood or grasped. Uh, which right. is fascinating because I believe, yeah. So um, Tolstoy was sort of famously or even infamously not a fan of Shakespeare, like sort of hated Shakespeare. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> yes. at least according to Harold Bloom, among other critics, I, I don't think mm-hmm. Bloom is exclusive in this. Um, no. Is that the idea that Shakespeare created 
the dynamic characters in at least English literature, the idea of characters who did grow and explore and change was like a Shakespearean mm-hmm. invention. Again, in at least English language literature, you can argue about like how much influence he had on the literature of other languages, especially at different time periods. Um, so there's not necessarily a direct influence, but it's interesting that like Tolstoy famously had so much beef with a writer who, at least if you're right, Michael, and I think that you are like had a very similar project in his fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just the, the first thing I thought of. Um, yeah, that's no, that's totally valid. And I, I think it is actually pretty ironic and, and pretty funny. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's like, I, I mean, you could argue or you could view it as like, you know, like often like, mothers and daughters or fathers and sons have the greatest beef with each other not because they're different but because they're so similar or like siblings who are similar or friends who are very close in personality tend to like have the direst fights with each other not over differences but over similarities like there's there's maybe something there going on um mm-hmm. yeah uh all of that said, uh, you were kind of asking me, and and maybe tied in, I guess, but you were kind of asking me, like, what parts I cried about. Um, oh, yes. In this read, one of the biggest ones was actually the relationship between Natasha and, and Maria. Um, like, you kind of said every time Maria came on the scene, like, you know you you maybe uh lost it like i think every scene with the two of them and and again this was partly because i kind of knew i mean i did know like roughly what the arc was but it was like because those two characters seem in so many ways so similar and yet the way tolstoy portrays them you understand completely why they have the differences or the the arguments or the the misunderstandings that they do um something about the tragedy of like the fact that they should be at first that they should be better friends and then that they become better friends only over the death of this person who is is so dear to both of them like something about that just mm-hmm. wrecked me mm. um and again, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that, like, it it did that in a way that, like, only Tolstoy's style or, or method even of characterization and his, his ability to show characters in different permutations and through different changes, like, you know... I, I don't think a, a different writer who couldn't do all of that would have wrecked me in the same way every single time that these two characters had a scene together. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, and, man. So, it, it like, when, when we read Tolstoy here, there's a sense in which realism, the term realism, comes to mind. Certainly. Um, 
Certainly. Absolutely. Certainly. Um, but also like it's infused or maybe just naturally portrays a sense of romanticism. Um, that maybe, maybe it's not romanticism per se, but it's the reality of the romanticism that really, in the realism sense, really lives in the various characters. Does that make sense? I don't know. It does. I've had these thoughts as well myself in that, like, I think a reading of Tolstoy, an attentive reading of Tolstoy that one could have would involve a very much a sense of realism that even goes back to, like, what we were talking about a little bit earlier about, like, um, you know, you viewed certain of these scenes, the battle scenes, the, the you know, scenes of, like, oh, the this general said this and sent this order off, but by the time the order arrived, uh, it was ridiculous and useless, so everyone did what, what they wanted, like... You viewed that as a comic mm-hmm. scene, which I don't think is wrong, but I viewed that as, like, <laughs> very much historically accurate, which I also don't think is wrong. Yes. And I think that... No, um, not wrong at all. Like, it's a remarkable uh, uh, thing that Tolstoy pulled off, I think, of uh, uh, embodying these two things simultaneously. Like, I think there is a romantic in the like ironically or perhaps not at all ironically sense of literature that would have been current in 1805 or 1812 Hmm. when this novel is set that there's a romantic reading of this book and that there's a more realism based reading of this book in the sense of like what would have been popular in novels in 1865 or 1869 when this book was coming out and Tolstoy manages, I think, to embody sort of both of those, um, maybe yeah. in different ways and at different times, and maybe in like if you were like from a perspective of say our undergrad lit crit class, where you had to embody the viewpoint of a certain very specific school, like you had to write a paper from the romantic Mm -hmm. perspective or from the realist perspective, like maybe you wouldn't like some of the ways that we're using these terms or, or these definitions. Um, You know, maybe in that sense, Tolstoy does violence to some of the schools he's drawing on. But I also think that in the same way as like um, Chekhov's character, in sort of the ultimate line of the seagull saying you should a writer rather should do what feels right and let sort of the form follow after that that i think tolstoy Mm -hmm. was probably doing what felt right and sort of letting the form follow after that as well yeah yeah and i i think you know, as, as much as other students of these schools of thought might object to the use of those terms, I think Tolstoy would be perfectly okay with them. Um, in, in a in a non absolutist sense, yeah. I think he would be okay plundering them for for what he needed. Yeah, for sure. Um, and 
and letting us comment on them plundering them for what we need. Um, <laughs> um, Again, it's because like, I, you it's know, a very it, anarchist got, sensibility, honestly. It, it really is. He's got um, a line in here, I was just trying to find it, where it's uh, a, like a, a, something about the nobility of a Russian is that he doesn't know. <laughs> or something like that. Um, and like, I mean, your whole list of, of the things Tolstoy thinks we can't know. And this is like in the context, um, it, it was in the context of a Rostov chapter where uh, Rostov is like fighting somebody. Uh, he, he draws his sword and strikes at a Frenchman and the line is something like, he didn't know why he just did it. Um, and so, I mean, like it, that's, that's, part of this whole thing that there are aspects of an individual character, even one's own individual character that you can't know. You don't know. Like, why am I doing this? Why am I behaving in a certain way? I don't know. And Tolstoy is comfortable letting that be unknown. And I think that might be something he's combating against mm -hmm. in the sense that any work of art might combat against something. Um, his, his literature is combating against the idea that we must know. Uh, he says, no, we don't, <laughs> we, we don't know. And we can't. Um, well, and, uh, and, and if that's what makes people human, I think. And it, in, yeah. And I think if the illusion of fiction or the, ideal of fiction is that we see into the heads or into the experience of people who aren't ourselves that experience is not always explicable or always knowable and so if we're seeing into other people's experience mm. a lot of that will be them in the same way that like any human does doing things for reasons that they don't understand and whether that's mm -hmm. a, not allowing themselves to understand or simply they are unable to understand or somewhere sort of in between those two or that they don't understand for a different reason, like almost doesn't matter that like, yeah, that, that an inherent part of the human experience is not fully understanding the reasons for you doing something, especially when you're doing it. Um, right. I I think that's part of what gives Tolstoy's characters such life too. That like he he is able to create such a full universe is because of that element of not knowing, not knowing oneself, and uh, not knowing others, but especially that not knowing oneself or not knowing why about so many different things. I I, I thinking about like writing exercises and things that exist about like. Um, it creating characters, you try to fill out their whole biography and like get this whole idea of, of their motivations and their views on different things. And like, you fill all this out and you get as much information into them as possible. I think Tolstoy would reject that and say, no, they're a person. They don't know that. Mm -hmm. Why should you? <laughs> um, and so let them be a person who doesn't know. And that's, that's, what's really really motivating for an individual I, or what makes a person unique yeah um I, it, this is all just making me remember an article that i or a quote from an article that i read recently that i wish desperately i could remember like the author or the source of this like what this article actually was but something i read recently said the thing the it, it was talking about sort of why 
tokenism seems sometimes to unintentionally happen in novels, especially in the mm. 21st century. And it was the idea that characters in novels are inherently knowable in a way that mm. actual human beings are not. Like, the idea that mm -hmm. we inherently can't know each other because we're sort of trapped in these, like, individual meat frames. I'm paraphrasing, if that wasn't obvious, but mm -hmm. we're trapped in these individual meat frames where we're mysteries to ourselves, much less to each other. Um, and the whole idea of a character in a novel is that they're knowable in a way that real people aren't. Um... Sure. But I think that there's a paradox there or an inherent ambiguity that's probably, if not intentional, at least um, fortuitous, which is that, like, char like, fictional characters being knowable doesn't mean we as the reader or the consumer are entitled to know them. And also, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that they know themselves. Right. And right. Um. I th yeah. Go ahead. I I just think that like a di me restating a different version of what you just said is the idea that Tolstoy's characters really embody this very real seeming ambiguity um, between. Being knowable to us and being unknowable to themselves. That inherently embodies also being noble to themselves and being unknowable to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the only thing about that set of, like, witticisms that I'm uncertain about is them being noble to themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Um because yeah, I think to a large extent they're not. Um there's a, this is spurring on like a thought that I've had about this book too that like I I largely chalked up to my distance from a the language and b the history um is the the tension between fiction and history mm -hmm. in the novel. Right. That like there, there's certainly history and Tolstoy has done his best to be accurate to the history, but there are fictional aspects, too. Right. Um, similar to um, uh, what what uh, we discussed when I was um, finishing reading um, Declare by Tim Powers, um, where his whole philosophy in novel writing is I'm going to keep it historically accurate and then fill in the gaps with whatever the heck I want. Right. Um, <laughs> that like Tolstoy has essentially done the same thing. Like he's kept it historically accurate and then filled in the gaps. Uh, but it's not so much filling in the gaps. He's filled in the characters with life um, and made, made them not, not knowable, but known mm -hmm. in a different way mm -hmm. to the readers. So like it, for myself being someone who is distant from the language and the history i can't tell the line of demarcation between a person who really existed and a person who didn't and 
the line of demarcation between um, the fictional part of a person who really existed and the historical part of a person who really existed. Right. Um, and I just as which, an aside, I want to throw in the fact that yeah. Tolstoy really does us dirty by including at least one Tolstoy <laughs> in the historical character. I know! What a jerk. Um, yes. <laughs> I have no more to say about that yes. or no more knowledge on it. I just want to register my discontent. Just... Yes, noted. <laughs> <laughs> I I subscribe my name as a second <laughs> under that. Um, we will duel yes, him. Yes, he's a jerk. We will duel him. <laughs> With you as my second, yes. <laughs> You'll duel him. Unless unless you can't show up and then I, I'll duel exactly. him. Um, that's, that's how that works. Anyway. Pretty sure. Um, right. But, so... This, like, I mean, there's so much to, to talk about in terms of his style and his philosophy and stuff here as we're as we're winding down um, to the end of, of episode two of four um, in in this. And, and we haven't there. There's there's so much else to talk about. Like, we haven't talked about something that has come up in numerous of our other books on this podcast. And that's the, the play with fate mm. and the question of fate. Mm. Um that maybe we can discuss a little bit next time. Um, but I, I'm, I'm theorizing that something that all at least great novels do, if not all novels in general, um, something that defines them as novels perhaps is at least attention to some measurable degree with the idea of fate and free will. Um, I, I, I don't know. This is, this is maybe a a theory that deserves more development somewhere else, but it's, it's something that occurred to me in reading this book. Um, I mean, it's that it's not the main point, but it's there. I, I mean, it's something that I don't think you could read this book with the intention of discussing it without it occurring to you. Like, Sure. I, I, you know, I won't comment on whether it's like the main point or a side point. Like, that sort of uh, is going to depend on how you define certain terms, I think. Um, yeah. You know, it, uh, and like, I don't, I don't agree or disagree inherently either way, necessarily. That said, um, yeah, I think it's definitely a discussion for this book. And I think it's definitely a discussion that this book implies, that this book implies, applies to all other novels. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, good. I'll definitely agree with you. Like, I don't necessarily disagree with you on any further terms, but like, I'll uh, I'll say like, unequivocally, without having to sort of parse anything else i i i can subscribe to those statements i i like those statements um yes i approve and uh i have no further notes for at least this episode um yeah i have nothing that's gonna take us certainly less than four minutes or so very good very good um 
All right, then, uh, gentle listener, we'll leave you at the end of this episode. Join us again in a couple of weeks to to continue discussing uh, War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. Uh, we're hoping to talk at least two more episodes uh, about this mammoth. Um, and so share your thoughts with us in the t- contact section of tapestryradio.org. If you put Scotch Talk in the subject line, we'll know you're talking about. Um, or you can uh, join us on Facebook in the Tapestry Radio Tap House. If you request to join, we'll let you in unless you are not a real character and you do know what's going on because those are the same thing. Um, so, <laughs> um, Ethan, anything else to add? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Great. Then, with that, until next time, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if Natasha or Princess Maria is on the scene. (laughs) Um, Bye. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.